It's good to hear from our friend Moochie. Uh, that last part of it was not scripted at all. Everything is just better together at the Oaks all the time. We never tell people to say that since it's our annual theme. It's just people just know it. Um, but we have several mission trips coming up in the life of our church. Uh, we're going to London in a couple of months. Uh, there's a couple more spots on that trip. So if you're interested in going to London to serve our church planters there, we'd love for you to join us on that. Come find me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about it. We're going to Miami in September, and then we're going to be going over to our East Asia church plant in uh, October, and we're really excited for that. So I would just encourage you, uh, if if you have the, the PTO available, if you have the money to start setting aside to, to go on one of these trips to encourage and care for some of our missionaries, please begin to do so. If you're interested in any of those, just come see me or Terry Lee. We'd love to tell you more about it. Well, my name's Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And as you do so, I just want to ask you a question. Uh, have you ever just completely misunderstood something? Have you ever just completely missed the point about something that is important or maybe just something trivial, but you just really missed the point of something? One of the greatest joys of my life is being a dad, and I have three kids. My oldest is now five, about to be six. And one of the things that I love about parenthood is that once your kids sort of get to the toddler phase, it certainly doesn't get easy from there, but uh, it gets more entertaining uh, because of the things that your children will say and do. Uh, oftentimes you'll just look at your child and say, like, who, who taught you these things? Um, it, it wasn't me. I didn't teach you this. I, I have no idea why you're doing this. And one of the things that I love about my son Judah is that he makes us laugh all the time, especially the many times that he just misses the point of something. Whenever this happens, you know, Caitlin and I, we, we laugh he laughs with us. It, it's a great scene, but, but it, the truth remains. He's just missing the point, you know. For instance, it seems like almost a, a daily occurrence, it will just go completely past Judah. If Caitlin is maybe in the kitchen, she's making dinner, and he sort of walks in, sees her making dinner, and says, uh, Mom, I need a snack. I'm hungry. Now, if you're a parent, this is like a normal, everyday thing probably. But as a parent, you're also like, do you not see me making dinner? Like probably in three minutes, you will be eating. You don't need a snack, right? It's okay, and it's okay to laugh at that. You know, kids are funny, okay? There we go. That's better, okay? Um, he also has a way of taking things uh, very literally. I think he gets that from me. Uh, the other day, Caitlin, you know, was sort of talking to him. He had done something wrong, but it's, it's something that we had sort of talked to him about several times. And Caitlin just said, you know, Judah, how many times is it going to take you to, to, to learn to listen to me and to obey? And Judah, without skipping a beat, just said, 15 times. <laughs> a solid 15 will do. Uh, he, he's five, right? Um, he just, he's missing the point. We try and talk to Judah about the gospel every day, right? Uh, good Christian parents, we're going we're gonna to talk to our kids about the gospel. Yes, we encourage that. We live it out. Uh, but sometimes for a five-year-old, this involves a lot of really big ideas. A lot of really big ideas that we learn about, like the reality of life and death. We have heavy conversations. But even in the midst of some of those heavy conversations, uh, Judah can miss the point. Um, you know, and as a parent, you're kind of thinking like, oh, man, 
I'm getting through to my kid. Like, this is a good conversation. And we had one of those conversations the other day. You know, Caitlin was talking to Judah. She was explaining how everyone will die and be held accountable for their life, whether or not they repent of their sins and follow Jesus, sharing the gospel with him, you know, drawing on big theological ideas. And Judah, after this long discussion, just had one thing to say. He said, Mom, I'm sad that I'm going to die because I'm going to miss my skin. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what possessed my son. Of all of the big theological themes that we had laid out there, the reality of judgment, all this thing, the thing that he was going to miss was his skin. I mean, and when that happened, Caitlin literally was crying, laughing, because he was just missing the point. And as a parent, you know, that's okay. That's going to happen. And uh, Lord willing, you can have another try at it another day to explain these things to your, ch- your child. And, uh, you know, this, this childish innocence is something that's beautiful. He doesn't fully grasp the weight of what we're saying when we explain these things. In Mark chapter 10, we're going to see an example of the disciples just missing the point. In our previous passage, Jesus had told them now for the third time, in the Gospel of Mark, that he's going to be delivered over to the authorities, that he's going to be beaten and mocked and spit upon and crucified, and that three days later he will rise from the dead. And as we look at our passage in Mark, we're going to see that despite the fact that Jesus tells this directly to his disciples, despite the fact that he lays it all out there for them, they just miss the point. Of course, as we come to a text like this, I think it's easy for us to look at the disciples and just say, how could you not get that? Almost like an adult looking at a child and saying, how could you miss this? It's easy for us to cast stones. But we are tempted in that moment to fall prey to the very pride with which the disciples act in this passage. You see, this passage doesn't just reveal the pride of the disciples, as we're going to see. It also reveals more broadly the pridefulness of humanity the arrogance with which each and every one of us is filled. Speaking of this passage, John Calvin said this. He said, This narrative contains a bright mirror of human vanity. This passage reveals our pridefulness, our arrogance, our vanity. So as we read this passage, I just want to ask you, would you consider how God may be speaking to you through his word this morning? Would you consider what message God has for you in the Word? And would you be willing to just be open to whatever that may be? Would you be willing to say, Lord, I am prone to wander and I feel it? I'm going to come to this text this morning with my heart open, ready to hear from you. And so with that in mind, let's go to Mark chapter 10 and we'll read together. Now, of course, our passage is Mark 10 verses 35 through 45, but What I want to do is I want to begin a little bit earlier on in verse 32 so that we can kind of get the whole story here. So let's begin reading in verse 32, and we'll go through verse 40. God's Word says this, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And 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 taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, 
And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Well, in our text today, I just want to sort of point out three movements, three scenes, three different parts of our story. And the first is simply this, just a conversation with Jesus. The first part of our story, we see this conversation that James and John have with Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, there are three times that Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to suffer on the cross and die and then be raised from the dead three days later. Interestingly enough, they're almost a chapter apart. Once in chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. You have another in chapter 9, verses 31 to 32. And then you have the final passion prediction here in chapter 10, verses 32 and 33 and 34. These sections are called by a lot of commentators and and pastors and things like that, passion predictions, because Jesus is predicting when he is going to lay down his life for his people. He's predicting his resurrection. And with each passion prediction, if you just take a step back and you only look at these three predictions, the prediction itself becomes more and more specific as time goes on. And this third passion prediction is quite specific. Did you notice that? Jesus knew intricate details about his coming suffering and death. And this is fascinating to me. Of course, Jesus is fully God and fully man, but he's aware of what is to come. Jesus would not have been the least bit surprised when he was handed over to the chief priests and scribes, was he? Right? Whenever Judas came to him in the garden, Jesus wasn't shocked. No, he was handed over to the chief priests and the scribes because he knew it. Or whenever they would condemn him to death, Jesus wasn't surprised by that. Whenever they mocked him, the specific words that they used, Jesus knew what they were going to say. When they spit upon him, Jesus knew that was going to happen. When they flogged him and beat him, when they nailed him to a cross, Jesus knew that all of that was going to happen. And what we see even just in this opening verse is that, nevertheless, Jesus continues onward to Jerusalem. Knowing the suffering that was to come, Jesus continued on. But the thing that we notice about each passion prediction is that each of these predictions is followed by an example of the disciples just completely missing the point. Do you remember back in chapter 8 whenever Jesus shares this story about how he's going to be delivered over and crucified. Peter tells Jesus, Jesus, you need to cool it with that. I don't like what you're saying, Jesus. 
Don't talk about that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It sort of shocks Peter, right? And then in chapter 9, the disciples hear this passion prediction. They hear even more details of Jesus' coming death. But then they immediately go to the next way and they begin to talk with one another like, hey, which one of us is the best? Which one of us is the best disciple, right? And now here in the most specific and full-fledged of the passion predictions, Jesus shares this most detailed prediction yet, and James and John have the audacity to ask Jesus in that moment if they can sit at his right hand or left. Look, let's look at the text again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now, if you have kids, you've heard this before, right? How many of you who have kids, have, have your kid has come up to you and said, Okay, I want to ask you something, but before I ask you, I just want you to go ahead and say that you're going to do it, right? Um, as if, you know, our kids kind of think, like, this this will work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them to get me what I want. Uh, you know, I really want to watch a TV show. So just go ahead and just, I'm going to ask you something, but just go ahead and agree to give it to me, okay? Let me do that. And it's like, no, this doesn't work, right? And it doesn't work here with Jesus either, right? It says, teacher, we want us, or we want you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus responds, notice, kind of calmly, kindly as a good parent would to a child, and rather than agreeing, just simply says, what do you want me to do for you? A question that we will see again next week when Connor preaches, but Jesus calmly and kindly asks, what do you want me to do for you? And this is where the story gets a little bit out of hand, right? James and John asked to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in glory. I remember the disciples and Jesus, they're headed to Jerusalem, and Jesus has told them, hey, I'm about to fulfill all that I came to do. Why I'm here on this earth, well, I'm about to fulfill that here in Jerusalem. So perhaps the disciples are thinking to themselves, hey, Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem, and those Roman overlords, he's going to get rid of them. And then that's, he's going to begin to build his kingdom here on earth, and so I need to ask him now if I can sit at his right hand, because I want to be in a place of prominence whenever he establishes his kingdom. I've been close with Jesus. I've been walking with Jesus for a couple years now, and I want to take advantage of my closeness and my proximity to him and leverage it for my personal gain. That's what they're thinking here. And so it's those intentions, those feelings that give way to this misguided question Jesus responds with sincerity. Notice his words here in the text. He tells them, you, you, you don't know what you're asking. As we're going to see, those are kind of haunting words. You don't know what you're asking. They had no idea what they were asking for. And then Jesus you know, sort of comes to their question with a question of his own. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized in the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? What he's saying here is, are, are you able to endure the suffering that is coming to me? He said, I, I just told you, I'm going to Jerusalem not to overthrow these rulers. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to be spat upon and beaten and mocked. You want to drink that cup? 
James and John respond here with the constant refrain of sinful humanity throughout the ages. We are able. Isn't that the word that we heard in the garden? Isn't that the word that we hear throughout human history? We are able. We do not need God. We can exist outside of God. We can do this on our own. I can't help but think of the many examples, whether it be the Israelites demanding an earthly king or Nebuchadnezzar pridefully proclaiming his own supposed deity or even the secular atheism of our own day. Mankind continually proclaims this message. We are able. We do not need God. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're tempted to believe that lie. You may say with your words that you depend upon God, right? As every good Christian would, I depend upon the Lord. I have nothing without God. But friend, let me ask you, does your prayer life exhibit that truth? Do you have a prayerful dependence upon God? Just take stock from your last week. Whether or not you are praying, that simple Christian discipline reveals whether or not you believe that you need God. Where do you go with your problems? Where do you go with your heart's desires? Are you prayerfully dependent upon God for everything? Are you dependent upon His Word? Do you believe that the Bible is more important than the food that you eat and the water that you drink because it reveals the knowledge of God? Do you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Or are you trying to build for yourself a kingdom on this earth? Do you long for the gracious presence of the Lord after you've sinned? Do you depend upon God for your sanctification? Brother, sister, when when you sin, when you do that sin that you just swore that you would never do again, but it happens... Is it white-knuckled obedience and discipline that you try and live with? Or do you say, I I need the presence of God to overcome this? Do you have a, a dependence upon the Lord for everything in your life? I think far too often we can look at the world and say that they try and do things without God. But if we were to take a look at our own lives, we would also see our own guilt. That we too say, we are able. I'm able to do this on my own. I'm strong enough. Brothers and sisters, we're not. You see, the disciples answered Jesus foolishly, and Jesus responds to them with a word that James and John wouldn't fully understand here at this moment. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Are you able to drink my cup of suffering, Jesus says? Disciples say they are. But Jesus says, well, I get your answer, but here's the, here's the deal. You're not going to sit at my right hand or my left. I can't give you what you ask. But you think you're able to. You, you are going to drink the cup that I drink. See, James and John had missed the point of the passion prediction. And I would venture to say that they're missing what Jesus is saying right here, too. See, after the crucifixion and resurrection, the disciples saw things so much more clearly. James and John became faithful pastors and movers and shakers in the early church. And James was preaching the gospel 
early on. And we see in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2 that James was beheaded. He would suffer the same way that Christ did. He would be killed for that which he believed. His brother John would live to see not only his brother killed, but all of the other disciples killed for their faith. Heartbreak after heartbreak, being the only one that's left after you see your loved ones and your friends die, that's worse than being killed yourself. He sees this, he has this very long life of heartbreak, only to be exiled to a barren island at the end of his life. You see, the suffering that these brothers would go through makes the words of Jesus even more real in this text. You do not know what you are asking. I wonder, if, I wonder how, how did Jesus say that? Did Jesus say that with a little bit of heartbreak in his voice? Did his voice quiver when he told his disciples what was coming? He loved these men. He loved James and John. And yet he knew the horrific end that they would come to in their lives. He'd look at them with tears in his eyes and say, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. You see, James and John wanted the glory of Christ without the cross of Christ. But in the kingdom of God, there is no glory without the cross. There's no glory without the cross in the kingdom of God. And the tragedy of this passage is seen at the request of James and John. You see, their dreams of glory, their dreams of their own fame, their dreams of their personal leveraging of the situation, it completely brushed aside the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that all that they could see was their own possibility of greatness. One of my favorite English pastors and theologians J.C. Ryle, he wrote this. He said, We are apt to forget the cross and the tribulation and to think only of the crown. And the result of all is that we often buy wisdom dearly by bitter experience after many disappointments and not a few falls. I wonder, have we overlooked the cross of Christ for the crowns of Christ have we overlooked the gospel for our own glory? Have we begun to prioritize personal gain and personal greatness rather than pointing to the one who is truly great? Far too often we treat Christ like some sort of amenity to our already nice lives than the actual Lord of our lives. Friend, rather than saying to yourself, I am able... Would you look to God and say, He is able? Christ is able to defeat your sin once and for all. You can't do that. He is able. Christ is able to sanctify you and to mold you into the image of God. Christ is able to give you joy and comfort beyond all imagination. What, are you, what, what troubles are you faced with this morning? There's true heartache in this room. There's tragedy beyond imagination in this room. And yet, God is there saying, I am able. I'm able to fix this problem that you have. I'm able to solve it. 
Maybe I'm able to comfort you even when the tragedy comes. I am able. So would, would you think to yourself this morning, in what ways in my life am I saying, I am able? We are able. I don't need the Lord. In what ways are you confident in yourself instead of trusting in God? James and John asked for something that was really never theirs to have. But the question arises and will be addressed in our next verse, right? What would the other disciples think of their imposition? Let's find out together and read verses 41 through 45. Mark continues, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Second movement here in our text is just a a teaching on true greatness. We see James and John have this conversation with Christ, and then secondly, we see this teaching about true greatness. Unsurprisingly, James and John's fellow disciples are not too thrilled to hear about their outlandish request before the Messiah. How would you feel if you were in their shoes, if you're one of the ten? You're there, you're within earshot, obviously, and you sort of look over, and James and John are like, hey, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and your left? Uh, how would you feel if you were Peter, right? Because Jesus' inner circle has three people, James, John, Peter. Peter's like, hey, guys, when did this like, group of three become a group of two? Uh, I guess there's only two sides to Jesus, right, left, but like, I don't get one of those. Right? The other disciples are like, all right, there's already this sort of inner circle, James, John, and Peter, but like, I'm Nathaniel, and I just want to be a part of this, right? I feel like a Nathaniel in life sometimes. They're like, hey, what's going on here? Right? They become indignant, is what the text says. And Jesus, ever the caring and compassionate teacher, takes this opportunity to teach his disciples about greatness. And I struggled with this thought this week, but notice here that Jesus doesn't condemn their desire for greatness. Isn't that strange? It was strange for me. Normally it's like, I think sometimes in life as Christians and uh, Christians who want to be theologically sound and everything, we, we talk about, you know, we are humble, we are lowly. That, those are good things, of course, right? But to hear someone say that their desire for greatness is not you know, sort of admonished in any way, might be strange to us, but Jesus doesn't say that's a bad desire. No, Jesus here does not condemn the disciples' desire and the pursuit for greatness, but rather their means of achieving that greatness. You see, it's not wrong to desire greatness, but we should long for a certain kind of greatness. In this text, James and John wanted worldly greatness. And we should desire kingdom greatness. And Jesus takes the opportunity to explain what those two are. What's the difference between the two? Worldly rulers, Jesus says, those who are great in this world, they lord their greatness over others. They rule for their own gain. And it's funny, we experience something like this from even 
the earliest of ages. How many of you have been in grade school, maybe kindergarten? I remember all the way back in kindergarten, right? And the teacher would say, I got to go down the hall and grab something real quick. And Terry Lee is going to be in charge while I'm away. All right? Well, how long does it take for little Terry Lee to rise up to become the, the great ruler over those 30 seconds? I've been in that situation. L- little Jimmy is going to be in charge while I'm away. Right? The teacher, the, the door closes. I stand up. I look out over my new kingdom of, you know, 20 other children. And I am now their king. I am their leader. The power goes right to my head, right? But then a couple seconds later, the teacher comes in. And just as I lorded my authority over my fellow students, the teacher now lords her authority over me, right? We, we see this even in grade school. And then guess what? We all grow up, and a lot of us don't change that much. And then we see it in the real world too, don't we? Every ruler has someone else that rules over them, right? It's pretty powerful to be the mayor of a city. But governors exist, Right? It's pretty powerful to be a governor. But cabinet positions exist. The presidency exists. Other world rulers exist. God exists. Right? We need to find our place on the hierarchy of humanity and realize that it's actually pretty low. You see, worldly rulers, those who are great, they lord their greatness over others. They rule for their own gain. But even these worldly rulers have people that rule over them. But Jesus says, it will not be so in the kingdom of God. That's good news for us, right? I don't like our leadership situation in this world. It's good news. It will not be so in the kingdom of God. Rather than lording over people and ruling for one's gain, those who will be great in the kingdom of God will be servants of all and slaves of all. Okay, now that is a paradigm shift, isn't it? But this is exactly what Jesus had told his disciples back in chapter 9, whenever they were talking about which one of us is the greatest. Jesus says, you want to know which one of you is the greatest? Which one of you is the least is actually the greatest. Whoever among you is the biggest servant of others is actually the greatest of you. If you aspire to greatness in the kingdom of God, that's a good aspiration, but if you aspire to greatness in God's kingdom, then you have to serve others. Do you see that here in this text? This is a paradigm-shifting reality for the disciples then. It's a paradigm-shifting reality for us today. If you want to be great in today's world, if you want to rise to the top, what do you do? Oh, well, you create your own brand. You build your own portfolio. You craft an excellent resume. You sort of mold your identity upon what you are able to accomplish You gain a following, right? You gain influence. Just one of the biggest failures of our society is that there's something called an influencer, right? You gain influence. That's what the world wants. You gain prominence. Greatness is tantamount to these things. Greatness, according to the world's standards, is all about you. You are great. But greatness in the kingdom of God is quite the opposite, isn't it? See, greatness in God's kingdom is seen in things like the Good Samaritan when no one is watching, stopping to help the traveler on the road. Greatness in God's kingdom is about serving others, not serving your own interests. The world would have you to believe that greatness can only be achieved if you focus on yourself. The world would have you to do things like build your self-esteem, 
What does esteem mean, right? Esteem means love, self-love, self-care, self-esteem. Self, 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 me, 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 I, I, I. Do you see how the world wants to just completely get you to understand and to think that the world revolves around you? It's just so true in every walk of life. It's all about me and my self-esteem and my self-worth. And Jesus says, listen, it's not that you aren't important, it's that others are also important. And not only that, but if you want to experience true greatness, if you want to experience actual purpose in life, you're not going to find it in selfishness. You're going to experience true greatness. You're going to experience true self-worth in serving other people. Right? If you want to be great in the eyes of the world, then just go ahead, right? Build your identity in worldly things. But if you desire greatness in the kingdom of God, then you have to serve others. Look at your fellow church members and just ask yourself, how can I meet a need? How can I serve someone this week? You know, someone mentioned in MC this week that they were going through this. How can I help meet that need? How can I care for that person? How can I join a serve team at the Oaks so that I can meet the needs of our church as a whole? How can I give of of what God gives me to be a good steward over so that I can see needs met in my city and around the world? How can I make my life about other people and not about myself? That's what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. But I fear not too many of us are great in the kingdom of God because we've become so inundated with this worldly ideal that greatness is all about me. Friends, if the entire world is all about me, then no one cares about one another. That's not a good world to live in. A selfish world. We want to be about other people. Our story began with Jesus telling his disciples about his impending death, burial, and resurrection. Of course, the disciples missed the point. And in doing so, they showed their ignorance to the truth that Jesus has been sharing for quite some time now. And with each of these passion predictions, I would say that a question is mounting in the hearts and the minds of the disciples little by little. Jesus talks about how he's going to be delivered up to die. Jesus talks about how he's going to be mocked and beaten. And the question that must be coming to the front of the minds of the disciples is this. Why must Jesus die? Why why is he talking about this? Why must Jesus die? And that question is answered here at the end of our passage. We can go back to verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the answer to the pressing question. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. How does he do that? He does that by giving his life as a ransom for many. So the third and final movement of this text is simply this. Jesus teaches that true greatness is seen in the substitutionary work of Jesus. True greatness is seen in the substitutionary work of Jesus. Mark 10.45 is one of my favorite Bible verses in the whole Bible. I think it's a very important verse for a variety of reasons. But I think that Mark 10.45 does two things in particular. On the one hand, it teaches us about the atonement. All right? 
It teaches us about the atonement. We'll get to that in a second. And then on the other hand, it teaches us about the heart of Jesus. Those two things are incredibly important. So in this third and final point, I want to talk about the atonement. I want to talk in theological terms. Theology is important. This is where you should be getting your theology. So if you're tempted to fall asleep, please don't. If you hang in there with me, I want to show you why this theology matters to your life. It's not some abstract idea. It truly matters. I want us to learn two things about the atonement, and then I want us to look at the heart of Jesus. First, Mark 10, 45 teaches us two things about the atonement. But before we do that, we should probably define what the atonement is. If you're like me, some of these bigger words are tricky for you. And so the atonement simply refers to a payment for some sort of wrong or injury. The atonement, sort of making, a way of making amends, right? In the Old Testament, they would atone for sins by making a sacrifice of an animal. Atonement is just trying to make right that which was made wrong by some sort of sin, transgression, or wrong. All right? So that's what atonement is. So if atonement is paying for some sort of a wrongdoing. And what we learn in Mark 10.45 is we learn two things about the atoning work of Jesus. First of all, it is substitutionary. And second of all, it is definite. So if you're taking notes, just jot those three words down. You might write atonement, and then you can write two lines from atonement and put substitutionary, definite. And that's what we're going to explain here. And I want you to stay with me. A lot of big words, but I'm going to show you why this matters. I'm going to show you why this matters to you like on Tuesday morning. All right? Substitutionary atonement is the foundational Christian truth when it comes to salvation. We actually talk about substitutionary atonement all the time here at the Oaks. In fact, if you look in the back of our room, we have a banner that we set up every week about substitutionary atonement. Now, I, I will say, if you turn around and look, you're not going to find one that says substitutionary atonement. We're not that nerdy here at the Oaks Church, okay? If we had a big banner that says, we heart substitutionary atonement, be a little bit of a turnoff, I'd say, okay? Even though it's true. But no, what is substitutionary atonement? The word substitute comes to mind. Well, the banner right back there in the left says, the gospel is Jesus in my place. That is substitutionary atonement. What does it mean? It means that you are a sinner. I am a sinner. And someone has to pay for the sin. Someone's got to pay for our sin. Because God is holy. And God is perfect. And God's holiness and perfection cannot allow, his perfect justice cannot allow sin to go unpunished. It's just against his character and nature. So someone's got to pay for it. Who's going to pay for that wrongdoing? Who's going to make the wrong things right, the dark things light? Well, it's either going to be you or someone else. You can pay for your sin. You pay for it with eternity separated from God. A payment that has no end date. It's kind of like having a mortgage with such an exuberant interest that you never actually pay down the principal on it. Your debt is only ever increasing throughout eternity. You will never pay it off. 
That's the reality that each of us are faced with whenever we look at our sin against a holy God, that we can never pay this off in full. So we will pay for this for eternity separated from God. That's bad news. But the good news of the gospel is substitutionary atonement. Jesus comes to earth and he says, I will stand in your place. I will take your punishment so that you don't have to. You see, the punishment still happens. It just doesn't happen to us. That's the goodness of the gospel. It's shocking, really, that the second person of the Trinity would stand in our place. Who are we? Substitutionary atonement matters. When you wake up on Tuesday morning, how does this, how does this matter to your life? How is it devotional to you? It, it matters because guess what? When you wake up on Tuesday, you can have the assurance that your punishment, if you are in Christ, is bought and paid for from now into eternity. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. That's why substitutionary atonement matters. A really big word, but an even bigger practical application for your life right now. So this verse teaches us about the substitutionary nature of the atonement. But it also teaches us that the atonement is definite. What I mean by that is that the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, while it is powerful enough to save everybody, it does not save everybody. Right? As Christians, we are not universalists. We do not believe that regardless of what you do, you'll eventually make it to heaven. That everyone's just going to get there at some point. We don't believe in universalism. We believe that everyone will be held accountable for their lives. One way or another. See what Mark says in 1045. It says, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. It does not say that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all. It says he gave it as a ransom for many. And this aspect of the atonement is important because it teaches us this important truth. Not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will turn from their sin and follow Jesus. There are going to be many who continue in their rebellion before a holy God and experience the full punishment and weight of their sin one day. I would imagine in a room with as many people in it as are here, that there are some here that are not believers. You may have deceived yourself into thinking you are a believer. You might think that all the good things I've done are outweighing the bad things. You might think I was brought up in the church. I do good things. I'm not that bad. And because of that, you have convinced yourself that you're okay. But the reality of definite atonement is that not everyone is going to be saved. And so, of course, why does that matter to our lives? It matters because it begs the question of each and every one of us. The text says Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, for many. Are you in that number? Are you numbered with the many that Christ laid down his life for? Are you numbered amongst the many who are covered in the blood of the Lamb? Not everyone will be saved, but Jesus does invite all sinners to repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in him. 
Not only that, but we know and we believe that if you repent of your sins, if you turn from your sins and you turn to Christ, you will be saved today and you will be in that number. That can happen today. And so let me ask you this one very simple question. Are you in that number? Do you truly have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins and put your trust in him? Or are you just fooling yourself, trying to heap on as much good works and good efforts so that one day when you stand before God, you'll have something to say? See, the gospel is Jesus in my place. Jesus came not to be served, but he came to serve. And that's where we see the heart of Jesus We see these big theological themes, but at the same time, we see the heart of Jesus. Sometimes when we talk about judgment and death and all these things, we are tempted to think that Jesus is somehow unjust, maybe to think that Jesus is not good. But this text reveals the heart of Jesus. His heart is to save sinners. If you question the goodness of Jesus amidst the judgment of Jesus. Consider this. He laid down his life for his children. He loved you to the point of death, even death on a cross. The heart of Jesus is to serve. The heart of Jesus is to save. Are you in that number? And as we come to a close this morning, I just want to finish the story of James, the son of Zebedee. James and John, they don't have their best moment here in Mark chapter 10, do they? I think we can all agree that. What Jesus says of James and John comes true later on. Jesus said, you will drink of the cup. You will be baptized in the baptism that I'm baptized with. You will suffer as I have suffered. In Acts chapter 12, as we've already mentioned, James is killed by the sword by King Herod. But, you know, the early church fathers wrote a little bit more about this tradition of James' killing. They give us a little bit more content whenever you read some of the early church fathers. Two church fathers, Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius, both wrote about the final day for James on this earth. You see, James, the son of Zebedee, went to his death, as we see in Acts chapter 12, and he's killed, but... Eusebius, writing at the end of the third century, not that that far removed from these apostles. He wrote this about James. This is coming all the way to us from about 1,700 years ago. He quotes Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. But then Eusebius goes on to give us a little more context He tells us the whole story. He says, the one that led James to the judgment seat, the soldier that led James to the judgment seat, when he saw him bearing his testimony, was moved and then confessed that he was himself a Christian, and they were both therefore led away together. And on the way, he begged James to forgive him. And he, after considering a little said to the soldier, Peace be with thee, and kissed him. And thus they were both beheaded at the same time. 
You see, James and John missed the point, but eventually they understood. They would suffer as Jesus suffered because there is no glory without suffering. There is no glory without the cross. And on that last day, the death of James changed one man's life. So that the, the very soldier that was leading him to be beheaded heard his testimony, heard the gospel, and said, I want that. I want Christ. And they said, you will be beheaded too. He said, glory. I'm willing to suffer because the gospel is true, because the gospel is good. James, in that last day, cared more about the glory of Christ than his own glory. And I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the story of James, it brings tears to my eyes. It brings this sort of sorrowful joy to my soul. But church, let me just say, if the story of James moves you, how much more should we be moved by the story of Jesus? You see, his death didn't just save one. His death saved many. His death wasn't just for the sins that he committed. No, his death was for the sins that we committed, the sins of his children. He was the very son of man, the one that we've been waiting for all this time for thousands of years. And rather than forcing every knee to bow in that moment when he came, no, Jesus came with the good news of the gospel so that he washed the feet of his disciples, so that he cared for them, even as he's on the cross, caring for his own mother. It's the heart of a good father. See, the Son of Man, Mark 10.45 says, the Son of Man, the firstborn of creation, the second person of the Trinity, the one who's speaking galaxies into existence, the one who's forming the very fiber of our being, God in the flesh, came to this earth to dwell among us, not so that he could be served, but he came to serve others, even to the point of death on the cross. He served others by offering his life as a ransom for the sins of his children. And here in our last moments, we see the main point of this passage, that in the kingdom of God, greatness is achieved through being a servant of all. And there is no greater servant in God's kingdom than King Jesus. Let's bow together and pray.